from every other religion in the world. How can a man be made right with God? The answer to that is through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you again that we could gather as your people to look at your word. Lord, help us, O oh God, to understand, to see the beauty of the gospel in these scriptures, Lord, in your word. You have, you have shown us, you have delivered to us truth. Father, we pray that you would show us Christ, that you would show us our great need you would show us, Lord, that you are a God who is worthy of worship. And you alone, Lord, are worthy. And that we would say, Lord, as your people, that all we have is Christ. And we would glory in that, Lord. And we have no other hope in this world but Christ alone, crucified and risen from the dead on our behalf. Lord, that you would bless your people. And your gospel would go forth, Lord, and that we as your people, we would live for you. It's in Christ we pray. Amen. I want to read again Romans chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to just hang out and camp out on this verse for our entire time. And it will take for us a, uh, all of our time tonight or, or, or today. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember, justification is a legal term where God declares a sinner to be righteous in His sight. And we looked at a few weeks back where Nick preached on that justification is apart from works. And we saw Aaron preach on a couple weeks ago that justification or that this righteousness comes to us from another. It's not our righteousness, it's another's righteousness, namely Jesus Christ. And then last week, for those of you who weren't here, uh, Nick preached on that, that this justification, this faith, this, this, this salvation is right there. It's attainable. Believe. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's right there. And then today, what we're going to look at now is, is the so what. It's the so what of justification. And Paul lays out here an argument that we're not going to go through, but in chapters 3 and 4, he's laying an argument and the ground. He's proving that indeed sinners are justified, declared righteous before God simply by faith alone in Jesus. And in chapter 4, specifically, he looks at Abraham. And he proves that Abraham was justified simply in believing God's promises before the law ever came. And so all of that is working through, and then we get the big therefore in chapter 5. Therefore, what are the implications now? And Paul lays out for us these great blessings, these benefits, now that you have been justified by faith, and he lays out the blessings. And I want to read some of them for you, and they're in the text right here in verses 1 to 5. You get the first one is we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have access to God, verse 2. We, we, we rejoice. We have joy in God. Verse 2 and all through verse 3. And then also that God's love is poured into our hearts, verse 5. And in the end of verse 5, the Holy Spirit is given to us. And so these are the practical blessings and the benefits of justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And today, we're just going to spend time looking at one of them. And, you know, as I was preparing this, I was thinking to myself, you know, I might have to go through the end of the chapter or the end of verse 11 because I need, I mean, there's no way I could preach for 45 minutes or so on one verse. And as I start looking at this verse, I was telling Nick, I, I'm just, I have to preach only on verse 1. There is so much glorious truth here that I want to bring out for us about the gospel and about the good news of what Jesus Christ has done. And it is important for us to know that when we're reading the Bible, we want to read for breath, right? We read a lot of scripture and also it's good to go depth, to go down deep. 
So we read breadth and we, and, and we read for depth. And it's easy just to read through this and go, oh yeah, we have peace with God. And then just keep on moving on. It's like, whoa, no, no, wait a minute. We need to stop. And that's my heart today. I want to stop and I want to go down into this well. And brothers and sisters, there are glorious, glorious gospel truths here for us. I would argue that this is mankind's greatest need. Peace with God. And I would also argue that this is the greatest benefit. This is the greatest blessing. Paul lists it first. This, and I think there is some weight to that. He lists it first. This is the first thing. You have peace with God. And we're going to see that peace with God is actually the foundation for having every other blessing. You can't have access to God if you don't have peace with Him. The love of God is not poured into your heart if, if, if you don't have peace with Him. You don't have the Holy Spirit if, you're, if you don't have peace with Him. And so it's grounded here. It is the most important thing, and it's mankind's greatest need. And so the title of the sermon today is, is called Mankind's Greatest Need, Peace with God Driven by the Gospel. And I have three points for us today. The first point we're going to look at is the blessing. What is peace with God? Why is that important for us? The first, or, or the second point is the means of the blessing. How does peace with God come? What is the means? Through what? Through who? And then the third point is practical application. Gospel hope and gospel advancement. How do we apply this verse to our lives? So let's, so let's dive right in. Number one, point number one, the blessing, peace with God. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, we have been justified. It's past tense. Justification is an event that happens in the past. And it's a declaration that God declares that the, the sinner, innocent, righteous, in the, it's a past event. As soon as you lay hold of Christ, by faith, you are justified. You are declared righteous before God. This is not something we're looking forward to in the future. This is not something that we're looking forward to, hoping that in the end, well, maybe we'll be justified when we get to the end, when we stand before God. It's too late then. It's too late. You ask people, and when you go out and do evangelism, you ask people, if you were to die today, heaven or hell, where are you going? And a lot of times they will tell you, I don't know, I'll just figure it out when I get there. I guess I'll just find out when I get there. I hope when I get to the end, I'll do more good works than my sin and somehow the balances will, will tip in my favor and then God will let me in. Folks, it's too late then. It's too late. This is, this is the reality for every single religion. You talk to anyone who's... who's, who's uh, uh, Islamic, Islam, I've talked to dozens of men in Asia about this, and they don't know. They're trusting in their good works. In Catholicism, same thing, you have no assurance. That's why we have to have the doctrine of purgatory. But the Bible says here that once you believe upon Christ, you are justified. You could know now. You could know now. It's the foundation of our Christian walk. You have been justified, now live. And he says that we have peace with God. Notice first who he's talking to. Who has peace with God? We. Paul's writing to Christians. We know back in chapter 1 that he's writing to the church at Rome. He's writing to those who have been called to belong to Jesus. He's, he's writing to those who are, are loved by God and called to be saints. He's writing to Christians. Christians and only Christians have peace with God. And it doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for one day, one week, one millennia. It doesn't matter. It, it, it doesn't matter what kind of Christian you are. If you're a missionary, if you're a stay-at-home mom, if you've laid hold of Christ, you have peace with God. And notice now, I want to talk about this. This is different than having the peace of God. So oftentimes we see in Scripture that uh, you have the peace of God and we have peace with God. So in 
Philippians chapter 4, if you recall this, this text, when, when God says uh, for us not to be anxious, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to make our requests made known to God. And the peace of God will guard your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. So the peace of God, is, it's, a, it's a feeling. It's a, it's a sense of security that you're in God's hands. That's not what this is talking about, though. This is not the peace of God. This is peace with God. This is a fact, not a feeling. It speaks to our relationship with Him. This is, this is a relational term. And to have peace with God presupposes that before you have peace, what comes before peace? War. Right? War. So if you have peace with God now... Peace presupposes war. And I want to walk through Scripture here, and I want to paint a picture for us about what God's Word says in relation to us before we're Christians. To those who are, who are, who are in not a good standing with Him. We have to understand that God is infinitely holy. He's infinitely holy, and because of His nature, His righteous wrath and anger is found where there is ungodliness and unrighteousness. And Paul in Romans has already laid out for us in chapter 3 that all are under sin. He's wrote that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he's also wrote in chapter 1, Verse 18, that God's wrath is being revealed, being poured out on all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. And so I want to show you here where we were before we had peace with God. We see right in our text, in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, look at what it says for us. It says, in, in Romans 5, verse 10, Paul says, For if, while we were enemies... We were enemies of God before we came to Christ. Flip back to Romans 1.18. I just said it, but I want you to see it for yourself. Just flip back two pages here. Paul says in, in Romans 1 verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's wrath is being revealed now. Now, where sin is, God's righteous anger and hatred and wrath lies. I want to show you uh, some more text. Let's turn to the Psalms. The book of Psalms. Chapter, chapter 5. Psalm chapter 5. I want to show you the testimony of Scripture here. Psalm chapter 5, starting in verse 4. We read here, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Look at chapter 7, starting in verse 11 of Psalm. Psalm seven eleven down to 13. We read here that God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He'll sharpen his sword. He has bent, his, he has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Flip over to Psalm chapter 11, verse 5 and 6. 
the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Brethren, this is, this is weighty language. And notice, notice the object of God's wrath. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a phrase that's been coined that God loves the sinner but hates the sin. Now, there's a sense to which that, that might be true, but that's not, what this is, that's not what the Scriptures teach. The object of God's wrath and indignation is the person, not their sin. And some people just say, well, this is, you know, this Old Testament God, He's just angry all the time. He's not gracious. He's not loving. doesn't forgive. Flip over to Psalm chapter 2. And in Psalm chapter 2, this is speaking about the Son. The nations are raging in, in, in verses 1 to 3. They're opposing God. And look down at verse 11. Or verse 10, he says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Submit to Jesus Christ, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. It's a plea to the unconverted. Come to Christ. Submit to Him. Kiss the Son. Pay homage to Him. His wrath is, going to, is quickly kindled. Flee to Him. Flip over to the New Testament, John chapter 3. This is a chapter that uh, really one of the, maybe the most popular verse in the Bible. John 3.16 but I want us to look at the, the, the last verse of that chapter, John chapter 3, verse 36. We, we read here, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. Present tense, right now. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you will have eternal life. But if you do not obey the Son, if you do not obey the Gospel, God's wrath is abiding on you presently now. That's terrifying. And we read in Ephesians chapter 2, you don't need to go there, but, but Paul speaking of, to, to Christians and telling them where they were, is, you were by nature children of wrath. We were the objects of God's wrath before we, we've come to Christ. And I want to paint this for you so that you would see and you would marvel at the reality of your state outside of Christ. And for the Christian there's no, the Christian no longer lives underneath the wrath and judgment of God. It's over. The war is over. You have peace with Him. It's certain. He looks on you now with delight and favor and love. And this, and this peace with Him is more than just a removal of enmity. It's not, it's, it's not as if God just says, okay, I'm at peace with you. Now, bye, get out. No, it's much more than that. He brings us into His family. There's friendship. There's loving kindness of God. We have fellowship with Him. We're restored to, define, to, to divine favor with God. That is glorious. Matthew Henry writes on this section, The fruits of this tree of life are exceedingly precious. Is, that, is this precious to you? The fact that you were His enemy. You were underneath His wrath one heartbeat away from an eternal hell. And now you have peace with Him. Is that precious to you? Is that glorious to you? 
And with this peace secured, we can be sure that we have access into God's presence. We can be sure that we have real joy in the midst of trials. Because what does it matter? We have peace with God. We can rejoice in our suffering. With this peace secured, we, we, we have God's love poured into our hearts. We have the Spirit of God. Marvel at that, church. Marvel at that. You have peace with Him. The war is over. It's over. Now go and live likewise. Live. That's the peace. That's the blessing. Now the means. This is important. How does this come? Go back to chapter 5, verse 1. We have peace. And Paul just doesn't put a period here. We've been justified by faith. Now we have peace with God, period. No, he tells us the means, the avenue to which we have peace with God. Look at what he says. It's through our Lord Jesus Christ. You have peace with God through Him, through His person and His work, who He is and what He has done on your behalf and on the behalf of sinners. I want to look, let's look at His person, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not an accidental designation of His name. Paul uses the Lord Jesus Christ very uh, specifically here. This is not just Him uh, wasting ink. The Lord, it speaks to Him as Master, King, Supreme, Preeminent. He is God. He is the God-Man. He's eternal. He's the Ruler. He's the One who upholds all things by the Word of His power. He's the One who in Him the, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And it's at the name of Jesus Christ that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue will confess that He's Lord. You either do it willingly in this life, or He forces you to bow the knee and then cast you into the pit of hell. But He's Lord. He's also Jesus. His name means Jehovah saves. He's a Savior. When, Mar when the angel came to Mary uh, in the beginning of, of Matthew's Gospel, and she tells Mary that, Mary, you've been conceived by the Holy Spirit, and you will, you're going to have a son, and you're going to name his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. He's not going to try to save them. He's not going to make a way and then hope that people get saved. No, he came to save his people. Praise God. It's a trustworthy saying, Paul says, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He's a Savior. He came not to call the righteous, but He came to call sinners to repentance. He's come to save. And He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one from the Old Testament. He's the one that fulfills everything. Everything points to Him. He's David's greater son, the one who's going to sit on His throne forever. And his, and his dominion will be forever. His kingdom will be forever. He's the Christ. That's who He is. That's His person. Now His work. His work consists of His life, His death, and His resurrection. His life. Jesus lived a perfect life. Now that might just seem, uh, you know, for us to even think about that, we, don't, we can't even understand that. He, he was perfect? He never, he never sinned one time? Let me put it this way. The greatest commandment is for you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Do you realize that we have never done that for one split second ever? We have never done that. Ever. Ever. And Jesus never not did that his entire life. He always loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he always loved his neighbor as himself. He was perfect. He was without sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. He always obeyed perfectly. Perfectly. He always pleased the Father. His life was perfect. And theologians call this his active obedience. His active obedience. He obeys for you and for I. He fulfills everything. He walks perfectly. And then He goes to the cross. And He suffers 
and dies on the cross. And that's called his passive obedience. His life. He actively obeys for us and he goes to the cross and he suffers the death that you and I deserved. That's his life. Now, his work, or excuse me, his death. His death on the cross. This is, this is, this is, this is really important for us to, to, to know and to understand. Jesus' death upon the cross, the essence, the nature of it, the center of it, how we should view the cross is, is through a, Him being our, our substitute, the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. Your pla- His place for your place. He was our substitute. He took our place. Like Peter says, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. So when you view the cross, when you look at it, you're to see in, at the center of that, the nature of the cross is a substitutionary death. Jesus Christ on the cross bears the full fury and judgment and wrath of God in the, in the place of sinners. And on the cross, Jesus accomplishes much for us. He accomplishes a lot. And I want to I walk through a few of these terms for us. Now, my, my, my heart here is that you would know more fully what Jesus accomplished on the cross. All you need to know to be a Christian, to be saved, that Jesus died for your sins. Amen? Right? But as we grow in our Christian walk, it is, it is my heart and our heart here that you would have a more full understanding of what that means. And there's a lot that goes into here. Books and books and books of study. Awesome stuff. And so I want to I hit the tip of the tip of the iceberg for us. And I want to I explain what does Jesus accomplish for us on the cross as our substitute. Three things. One of, the, one of these three terms, one of them appears right now in our text. One term we find in our Bible all the time, and then another term you might not be so familiar with. Okay, Here are the three terms. I know, cute kid. He's awesome. I love him. Praise the Lord for, for, for my children. Especially when he wakes up, he's so cute and cuddly. So here, here, here are the three things, that, and there's more, but I want to focus on these three. Okay, Expiation. You may have never heard that word in your entire life. It's okay. Expiation, propitiation, reconciliation. Okay? Reconciliation appears in our text. So it was at the end of chapter 5. We've been reconciled to Him much more. Now we've received reconciliation. Okay? Expiation and propitiation. I want to explain these to you. Expiation is, this is very important, it deals in relation to our sin. It's just a fancy word. But what, it, but what it means is that Jesus w- takes away your sin. It's wiped away. It's wiped clean. He removes it. It's done. So expiation deals with our sin in relation to sin. On the cross, Jesus takes the sin away. He wipes it away. It's clean. Uh, you become clean. His, the sin's gone. You're, it's, it's gone completely. It's gone fully. It's like what you read in Psalm 103, verse 12, that uh, God removes our transgressions from us. So on the cross, Jesus accomplishes that. He expiates your sin. It's also propitiation. And propitiation has to deal with uh, the relationship toward God and His wrath and His anger and His hatred of sin. It needs to be propitiated. It's a sacrifice that turns away God's wrath. God's wrath is now satisfied. It's pacified. It's dealt with. So Jesus propitiates God's wrath and He takes away your sin. And also reconciliation speaks toward us no longer being enemies of God. And Christ brings us back to God, restored fellowship with God. So on the cross, Jesus accomplishes all these things and more. And more. But in terms of us, uh, how do we have peace with Him? Well... I think these three are important. And propitiation and expiation, we need to know, are just two sides of the same coin, right? Because once the sin is removed, God's wrath is unsatisfied. That's important for us to know. And this is foreshadowed in the Old Testament, right? All Scripture points to Christ. We see this in the Old Testament. 
in a few places and beautifully drawn out. And I want to explain these to you. We don't have to flip there. But expiation is beautifully pictured in Leviticus chapter 16, the Day of Atonement. Now, the Day of Atonement, very important day, the most important day in, in, the, in the history of Israel, in their old sacrificial system. One time a year, the high priest, one person goes back into the Holy of Holies, the inner room of the temple, of the tabernacle, to stand before God Himself. The Ark of the Covenant, God's presence right there, only goes in there one time a year. If He comes in there twice, God says He'll kill Him. Why? Because God's holy. Okay? You don't, you don't have access to God. We do now because of Christ. But anyways, that's, another, that's, that's, that's dealing with this. So, But as He goes back there, okay, he makes atonement for the sins of the people. He confesses the sins for himself and for the entire nation. And sin is dealt with there. Now, in that chapter, it speaks of these two goats. One goat they use as a sacrifice. They kill it. Okay. The other goat, what they do is they keep it alive. And the, the high priest lays his hand on the head of this goat and he confesses the sins of himself and the entire nation of Israel upon this goat, symbolically speaking, right? Okay, it's a picture. It points forward. It's a foreshadow of things to come. And the priest lays his hands on the head of this goat, confesses and places all the sins of Israel on this goat, and he sends the goat outside the camp, in, outside the city, outside into the wilderness. And that, and that goat, walks off literally into nowhere, just in the wilderness. It's gone. It's gone. And the, and the picture here is that your sin is being removed. It's rem you see the goat and you think to yourself, my sin is being removed. It's going. It's gone. It's off into the wilderness to, to be remembered no more. And that's a picture of Christ. It's a picture of what Christ accomplishes on the cross for us. In Leviticus chapter 16, verse 22, we read, The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let it, the goat go free into the wilderness. The goat bears the sins of the people, and it's gone. Symbolically, metaphorically, foreshadowing what Christ does upon the cross. Now, I want to read a few verses to you about Jesus. In Isaiah 53, verse 11, we read that He will bear, the same word, He will bear their iniquities. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, Jesus bears the sins of many. 1 Peter 2, 24, Christ bears our sins. And John 1, 29, beautiful passage. Nick preached on a couple months ago. Great sermon. The, John comes out and he sees Jesus and he says, The Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sins of the world. He takes them away. He takes them away. They're gone. It's a foreshadow of Christ and what He does as, as, our, as our high priest, as our sacrifice, as our, as our Lamb. He wipes them clean, folks. It's, the Old Testament is awesome. And we have, to, we have to know where to look for Christ. And also... That's expiation. Propitiation we saw in our text that we read in Numbers chapter 25. We see that the people of Israel have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor, this false god, this idol. They're yoked to him. They've left Yahweh, the true God. And what did we read? God's pouring out his wrath and fury. He is angry. 24,000 people die. God is angry with the people. And we read of Phineas. He's a son of the priest. And he goes and he, he kills as a priest does. Remember Aaron talked about this. What does the priest do? Guard and protect. To guard and keep. Guard and keep. And he's rooting out sin. And after he makes that sacrifice, after he ends his sin, God's wrath is turned back. And God commends him. And says that Phineas has made atonement for the people. Ooh. And Phineas is in the line of the priests. And that points forward, forward to a, our great high priest, Jesus Christ, who comes and he satisfies the wrath and fury and anger of God. It's propitiation. And so we see both of these in Scripture. It's all over the place. Christ is our high priest. He offers Himself. 
to take away our sin and to, uh, and to, and, and to satisfy God's wrath. Now, in the New Testament, where do we see this word? Where do we see this idea? We see it in a number of places, and I want to go to one of them. So we see it in Romans. Don't go here, though. Romans 3.25, it's there. Propitiation, that word's there. The word propitiation occurs also in Hebrews chapter 2. And we get it in 1 John twice. Propitiation. So I want to go to one of these. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. Flip there with me. 1 John... So not the Gospel of John. So 1 John is like almost at the very end of, uh, of your Bible. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. Now, it's important for you, I believe, to know what this word means and what this idea means because... Well, I'll, I'll, I'll let you get there. I don't want to talk while you're flipping. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. And so this is another place where we see the word propitiation. And it's important for you to know just what that word means in the idea as I've just described to you. Because this, listen, this word, number one, it's in your Bible. occurs three or four times. You need to know what the idea is. It's also on the gospel tracks that we have here. You guys ever notice that? This verse is on those gospel tracks, those long ones. And so when I was at, uh, we were at the abortion mill. Sergio, you remember this? Uh, we were at the, at the abortion mill maybe three weeks ago, and I was reading the track going through this with, with this guy, and I, and I read 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 to him, and he's like, what's propitiation? Good question, you know? So you need, to be, you need to know what the word means. You know, we're out evangelizing, you need to know what these words are, okay? And I want to read this to you. Uh, I just had my, my verse here, um, but it, the wind flew it, blew it. Uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. And then I, I didn't say, I don't know what that means. I explained to him what it meant, right? And praise the Lord. And so I want you to understand what the idea of propitiation is. So in chapter 4, verse 10, we read this. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So this is just where this word occurs here, but we have to understand this, that whenever you see the word propitiation in, in your Bible, just know in the back of your mind that both ideas are there present. Okay? Expiation, wiping away of sin, propitiation, satisfying God's wrath. Both ideas are there whenever you see the word propitiation. You'll never see the word expiation in your Bible. Um, and that's just, that's, that's just how it is for now. Okay? Um, <laughs> Big debate about that. We can talk later if you want more information, but it's okay. So for the context for us today, listen, propitiation, we have to understand this idea is key to the gospel. It is key. It is important. It is a doctrine that we must hold up. We must present before the world that Christ satisfies the wrath and judgment of God. And this doctrine is hated. Listen to me very carefully. That word you see there is hated among many professing Christians. So much so that scholars are at work trying to get that word removed out of your Bible. Get it out of there. Don't want it in there. You take this idea to these mega churches, these, these, these churches around the valley, these seeker-friendly churches, the idea that God is wrathful and full of vengeance and indignation and needs to be satisfied by Jesus, they hate it. And why? Well, it's not hard to, to understand, really. Propitiation presupposes a God who is angry and wrathful, who feels indignation every day. And so what these people try to do is they try to uphold the love of God so high that they deny His holiness. They deny His righteousness. They deny what Scripture presents to us. And if we deny propitiation, if we deny this idea of what Christ has done to bring us peace with God, we're in danger of not, uh, not knowing God as He's revealed Himself to us in His Word. We're in danger of creating a God in our own mind who we're comfortable with. Do you see? We need to know God as He has presented Himself to us in His Word. It's a danger for all of us when we see difficult things in Scripture to say, eh, I don't like the way that, that doesn't make me feel good. That's not true of God. And we paint this picture and we create a God in our own mind 
that looks a lot like us, actually. And we worship that false god. But the testimony of Scripture is, you don't have to, the love of God is, is not at odds with His wrath. The testimony of Scripture is what we just read, that God motivated by love, by love, He sends His own Son into the world to crush Him for you and I. For you and I, what a loving and merciful God. He sends His own Son to appease His wrath. And Jesus comes willingly and lovingly to lay down His life for sinners. I remember listening to a, a teaching a long time ago by a guy named David Platt. And I remember him talking about this idea. And he said something so profound that I just was like, you know what, yeah, praise the Lord. He said that God's hatred of sinners and his love for sinners meet beautifully at the cross. It's where they meet. God pouring out his wrath and doing that in love for you and I. Marvel at that. We must uphold these truths and, and, and for us to, to see more fully what it is that Christ does for us upon the cross. And then also reconciliation. And reconciliation is, is concerned with our separation from God. We've been separated from Him. We need to have that removed. Remember, we, we, we read, or we see in Ephesians chapter 2, that we were separated from God, alienated from Him, strangers to, to His Word, without hope and without God in the world. And God is reconciling us back to Himself. We don't reconcile ourselves back to God. God's doing it with us. God is on the move to reconcile sinners back to Himself. And He does it through a mediator, Jesus Christ. There's one mediator between God and man. It's the man Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5 Jesus comes as the mediator to bring these two parties together, God and man, representing both. This is why it's important that He must be God and man. Truly God and truly man. Because He can represent both, both sides and brings them together perfectly. And our, and our relationship is restored. Remember, remember I said this, it's not just about being declared innocent. Just, oh yeah, you're righteous, okay, now go. See ya. Like, you know, you go to the courthouse, right? I don't want to be invited into the judge's family. Declare me innocent and get me out of here. I want to go home, right? But not with God. You see, God declares you righteous. And then He brings you into His family, and that's a family we want to be in. He, 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 re, he restores the relationship. It, it's, it's a reverse upon the curse of Adam and Eve. Right? They're in the garden and they have perfect communion, perfect fellowship. God's walking among them. God's there with them. They sin. What happens? They kick God out of the garden? No. God says, out. You got to go. They cast him out, cast him east. And then what's happening? We see in the garden of Eden and now redemptive history is moving forward and moving forward. And what is God doing? Reconciling reconciling, reconciling, all the way till we get to the end, the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, where we're back together with God in His very presence, being reconciled. That's His, that's his work. His life, His death, and He expiates sin, takes it away. He propitiates God's wrath satisfies it, and He reconciles us back to God. There's a lot going on on the cross. Praise Him. Hallelujah. And also His resurrection. And of course, the resurrection never gets enough time. It's always getting slighted, and I, I don't have a lot here on resurrection, but this is really important. This, this is another whole sermon in, in and of itself. Go back to Romans chapter 5. His life, He obeys, He goes to the cross, His death, He accomplishes on the cross for us. And then, 
His resurrection. We got rain. That's right. We're almost done. We'll, we'll be done. Uh, I'm on the last page, so we're good. Bear in there. I'm cold too. I'm also sweating, so you know. <laughs> I understand you're sitting there probably freezing, but it's okay. Hang, hang with me. Pay attention. This is this is important now. Okay. Back to Romans chapter five. Look at verse chapter four. The verse before five one. Chapter five or chapter four, verse twenty-five. We read that Jesus was what delivered up for our trespasses, and he was raised for our justification. It's, it's cold. It's okay. <laughs> Listen, he was raised for what? Just for fun? No. He was raised for your justification. We are saved by His life. Romans 5.10 says that. We are saved by His life. And His life consists of His death, burial, and resurrection. He lives. He's the living God. Christ lives. And because He raised, Christians are guaranteed to raise. We are guaranteed hope. We're guaranteed salvation. The Bible says in Roman or in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that he is the first fruits. What does that mean? That means it's a metaphor that, that speaks to the, uh, the, the first of a much larger group to follow. So follow me now. You bake cookies? Any cookie bakers in here? Got a couple? Okay, right? Okay. You get your cookies. You got your big batch of, of cookie dough. Okay. Because we don't we don't grow crops and first fruits. Uh, we don't understand that. So I got to try to do some modern stuff here. Okay. You cook that first batch of cookies, and you got all the sheets behind it lined up, ready to go in the oven. You get that first batch in there. It comes out. It smells delicious. You take a bite of that thing, and you're like, "That is good." <laughs> what does that mean? That guarantees that the recipe is good, and the next ones are going to come in and come out and taste amazing. They're the first fruits and the rest of the batch coming in after that is guaranteed to be good. The same thing with Christ. Christ goes into the grave as God. He rises from the dead bodily. And because He rose, us coming in after Him are guaranteed to rise. That's gospel hope for you and I. That's hope. He rose. We're saved by His life. We serve a risen God. So what does this section conclude? And then we're going to go into application. Listen. We as Christians no longer have to live under fear of the wrath and judgment of God. We have peace with Him. We're at peace. And it's through Christ. It's through the Savior of the world. Christ has satisfied the wrath and judgment of God. He's removed our sins. They're gone. They've gone out into the wilderness. They've been cast into the midst of the sea. No, no more to be remembered. And He's risen from the dead. He's the first fruits. He's a guarantee of our future resurrection. So then application. How then shall we live? Got three R's for us. First, we rejoice, we rest, and we run. Rejoice, rest, and run. Look at what it says in, in chapter 5, verse 11 of Romans 5.11. He says, More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We rejoice in God. Now what's the big deal about that? The God who you were enemies with before you've come to Christ, you could rejoice in now. Rejoice in Him. Praise Him. Worship Him. Marvel in what He has done. He's forgiven you so that you would praise Him. Rejoice in God. And we rest. We rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and 2 shows us that when you lay hold of Christ, you have peace with God, you have access to God, you have these benefits, you have them. Okay, And then Paul shows us, he proves it to us in verses 6 to 11. You get the word for. He's grounding his argument in what? The death of Christ on behalf of sinners. God guarantees your salvation because it's a complete work of Him. 
It's His work. If you've laid hold of Him by faith, you have and you will be saved. And Paul shows us this in verses 9 and 10. And hang with me. We're right at the end. We're, 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 we're right there. Hang with me now. This is very important. You guys can scoot, yeah, scoot forward a little bit. Scoot forward. This is, this is the most important part of Paul's, of Paul's argument to cause us to rest in the fact that God will save us. Look at what he says in verse 9. He says, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more, under that, underline that, that phrase, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Verse 10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by His death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Paul is arguing from the greater to the lesser. He's telling you that the greater work is done. The, the much more, the greater work. You've been justified by His blood. Much more shall you be saved by, by wrath to come. He says that, that the greater, you were enemies, reconciled. Much more shall you be saved from, by His life. He's guaranteeing an argument from the greater to the lesser. Oh, Lord, okay. It's a guarantee. You could rest in that church that if Christ has justified you by the blood of Christ, if God has justified you, declared you to be righteous, it's easy for Him to save you. You will be saved from the wrath to come. You could rest in that. Not in your performance, but in the saving work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Lastly, run. We this is the most important point. Run to the nations. We have got to take this gospel. There is no other way for this world to be reconciled to God except for through Christ. They need to know. And people are all over this world trying to find peace with God through a number of things. Through, through their good works or through their church or through these false gods or through whatever it is. They're trying to find peace with God. And the Bible says that you can't have it outside of Christ. This gospel must be taken. We must run. Run to them. Run with the message of reconciliation. And you don't have to flip there, but this is my last point, or my last verse here. It was 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. And in that we read that God is reconciling the world to Himself. The gospel is bigger than this neighborhood. It's bigger than your family. It's bigger than this country, than this city. God is reconciling the world in Christ to Himself through the church. Let's pray.